Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's still Christmas, there's still a chunk of brie somewhere in the fridge, and our Bunker Gold series of episodes you might have missed is still going strong. Hello, I'm Andrew Harrison. Or am I? Perhaps I'm an AI-generated facsimile of a human, and you are a disembodied mind experiencing a simulation of the real world. The idea that the world we live in is an illusion runs from the Matrix and Philip K. Dick all the way back to Plato. From last June, here's Roz Taylor talking to NYU philosophy professor David Chalmers in Enter the Matrix, Are We Living in a Simulation? Welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. Here you are, listening to The Bunker, maybe walking the dog or cooking dinner. But how do you know the dog is real? Am I real or just a simulated voice? Did the world we're experiencing arise spontaneously? Or is it a simulation of some kind? And what might be doing the simulating? The idea that we might be living in some form of simulation gained popular currency with The Matrix. And in recent years, authors and filmmakers have carried on playing with the idea in series like Westworld, in the recent French bestseller Anomaly, where a plane lands after going through turbulence. And then several months later, the same plane lands again with the same passengers. Joining me to talk about reality is David Chalmers, a philosopher at New York University and the author of Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. Broadly, David thinks about consciousness and knowledge, whether and how we can know what we think we know. David, welcome to The Bunker. Thanks, Rose. It's uh, great to be here. While I was thinking about this interview, it occurred to me that we are doing something that until the last century would have been impossible, and before that was pretty much inconceivable. We're on separate continents, I think, having a conversation that will be converted into digital bits and heard again, hopefully, thousands of times, and could be replayed an infinite number of times. Now that such things are possible, is it easier to imagine that we might not be creatures of base reality, as it's put, as we assumed for so long? I think the technology here is starting to bring some very old philosophical ideas to new life. You know, philosophers in ancient Chinese philosophy, the uh, Taoist philosopher Guangzhou said, how do I know I'm not dreaming that I'm Guangzhou and I'm actually a butterfly? In the 1640s, René Descartes said, how do I know I'm not being fooled by an evil demon into believing there's a world out there when in fact 
none of this is real. These were kind of, you know, science fiction-y ideas. What technology is, is now doing is providing us a concrete way that scenarios like this could actually exist and could actually come about. I mean, virtual reality technology is getting very good. You can now put on a virtual reality headset and have an experience of a world around you. I mean, it's not yet, it's still a bit cartoonish in current VR, but within a few decades, within a century, every chance that it might be indistinguishable from physical reality. And once we have technology like that, then that just raises the question, could we be in that scenario already? Could this be a giant virtual reality that I'm experiencing? Could all this be a simulation? Well, there's one thing here, Nick Bostrom, who has suggested there is a strong chance that we are living in a simulation. What sorts of things might lead him to that conclusion? Bostrom and, and a couple of other people have put forward a statistical argument. We should take very seriously the idea that we're in a simulation. And here the idea is that most intelligent civilizations, if they develop far enough, are going to have the capacity to create many simulations. And that ultimately, we, we might expect them, any unsimulated world, to create hundreds of simulated worlds so that it could end up that simulated beings end up outnumbering unsimulated beings by, let's say, 100 to 1. And then you, uh, and you say, well, what are the odds then? I'm one of the unsimulated beings. It's maybe it's 100 times more likely that I'm one of the simulated beings, simply because there are going to be far more simulated beings across the history of the universe. That's, that's kind of a statistical case from the advancement of technology to the idea that we could actually be in a simulation. Why would a more advanced consciousness necessarily want to simulate others is a question I ask myself. And then I think, well, that is in some ways the idea of God, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, why would a God bring a world into existence? Why would a simulator bring a world into existence? I mean, one question, you already make a lot of simulations. We have a lot of simulated worlds and virtual worlds. Why do we do it now? Sometimes it's for entertainment, maybe playing a, a video game. Sometimes it's for science. We want to simulate some worlds to see what happens and understand reality. Maybe sometimes for decision-making purposes, we want to simulate the future of the world, you know, maybe for marketing purposes or to, to game out some political decision. So I think all those reasons could apply to a simulator. They might have simulated us for entertainment. You know, let's see possible ways the world might have gone. They might be doing it for science. They might be doing it for decision-making. You know, there's this episode of Black Mirror where people who just meet each other in a bar immediately run a thousand simulations of their relationship to see if they're compatible. And if the simulations go okay, then they go ahead with the regular relationship. And of course, there is the possibility that even if we ourselves are a simulation, then we may wish in our simulated forms to run simulations ourselves. Yeah, there could be simulations all the way down. You know, we're, we're making simulations, but we're also in a simulation. And maybe the uh, the beings who created us are in a simulation themselves. You know, back in the Matrix, when they first got out of the Matrix by taking the red pill, you know, a lot of people speculated that that itself would turn out to be a simulation. I guess it didn't quite pan out in the end in the uh, Matrix films. But yeah, who's to say there couldn't be simulations? within simulations within simulations. But is this the impulse that is already driving us towards things like the metaverse, for example? Yeah, you know, the metaverse is like the very practical end of these questions. You might say the hypothesis that we're in a simulation, okay, well, that's fine, but it's kind of science fiction-y and it doesn't necessarily make much difference to our everyday life. But on the other hand, once it comes to the metaverse, this is basically developing the technology for simulated worlds that we will ourselves be able to inhabit, go into for a while, and, and maybe spend increasing amount of time in these virtual worlds. I mean, already, you know, people spend huge amounts of time in video game worlds, whether it's Roblox or Minecraft or Fortnite. 
or whatever. You could, I mean, the, the idea behind the metaverse is that might expand beyond video games to encompass all kinds of virtual worlds that many of us will spend time in socially, maybe professionally, we'll uh, work in the metaverse, we'll build relationships, we'll build communities in the metaverse. So I think this is actually what many people in the, in the tech industry elsewhere are trying to work towards, a world where we're actually in a living, spending much of our time in a digital world. you argue in the book is that soon the simulations we create may be so good that we don't draw a distinction between what we have hitherto thought of as real and what is not real. And you give the example of a kitten. Tell us about that and why you think that virtual things can be real. Yeah, there's a long tradition of thinking that if you're in a virtual reality, it's like it's a fiction, it's an illusion. William Gibson, who first started exploring these ideas back in 1982 in his novel Neuromancer, said cyberspace, by which he meant virtual reality as a consensual hallucination. None of it exists. Whereas I try to argue this is the wrong way to think about virtual reality. When you're in a virtual world, you're interacting with objects that really exist, really can make a difference in the world. Now, they're digital objects, so they're different from physical objects. But I want to say no less real. So this case of a virtual kitten, I want to say a virtual kitten is not the same as a biological kitten. It's not the same kind of thing. You might say it's not a real kitten. I still want to say it's a real entity. And I make the comparison to a robot kitten. I mean, a robot kitten is not a real kitten. It's a real object. If we have a robot kitten here in the world, it'll be a real thing we can interact with. I want to say, uh, you know, a virtual kitten can be just as real as a real kitten. These may be digital or mechanical entities, but that doesn't make them any less real. And in a way, we've already gestured towards that. I remember recently searching for Bengal kitten on Google for various reasons, and it gave me the option of inserting a Bengal kitten into the room I was in, in a form of augmented reality. So we are reaching towards that already, aren't we? Do you think that augmented reality is going to be the way in, if you like, to a kind of metaverse? Do you see that as the first step towards these virtual realities? I do think augmented reality is going to be a really important step. I mean, right now, one of the dominant ways in is through virtual reality headsets that you kind of strap on and you experience around yourself immersively. But, you know, these are very awkward to wear. They're kind of heavy on your head. You feel very geeky inside a VR headset. Whereas augmented reality, where you experience a mix of the physical world and the virtual world, has a much more palatable form factor. We basically wear glasses. Through the glasses, you'll see the physical world, but digital objects will augment it, much as in, you say, Pokemon Go, you see these Pokemon creatures, digital creatures. And yeah, once we have augmented reality, we'll be able to interact simultaneously with physical objects and digital objects. Actually, it's got the promise, for example, to replace our smartphones and our computer screens, because all the screens we'll ever need will be projected into the augmented reality world wherever we need them. So I suspect that, you know, the technology, I think, is still a little way off, but maybe within 10 years or so, once it gets good, augmented reality technology really could be the next kind of platform for doing computing. And if we create virtual worlds in which there are virtual people, sims, as you call them in the book, are they people? Should we think of them as people? Yeah, I think right now, virtual people you have in virtual worlds like video games, almost certainly not people. But give it a few decades, artificial intelligence technology is advancing fast enough. Eventually, we'll have AI systems inside video games, so inside virtual worlds and outside virtual worlds, which are as sophisticated as humans, as intelligent as us, that we can carry on conversations with. At that point, I think it's very likely that they may well be conscious themselves. And at that point, 
yeah, the non-player characters with the video games are no longer just algorithms. I think they're conscious creatures. And there was this movie last year, Free Guy, that starred Ryan Reynolds as a non-player character who somehow gained consciousness. And at that point, it's like, yeah, well, they're very real for these games and they deserve moral rights. So you think that they will have either free will or they will think that they have free will. Yeah, well, much like humans, I don't know if we really have free will, but we certainly act as if we do. People say we have to believe in free will. We have no choice. Maybe the AI systems will be in a very similar situation. Maybe their brains will be mechanical, but our brains are at some level mechanical. I think we still get to make our own decisions and we're responsible for our actions. I think in a similar way, AI systems will end up making their own decisions and being responsible for their actions. So you think it will be possible to create ultimately a mechanical system that has the same degree of complexity and sophistication that our brains have? I think in principle, you know, the brain itself is a very complicated machine. And in principle, it's made of a bunch of different parts, all of which we ought to be able to simulate. People are already working on simulating neurons and on simulating the connections between them. And yeah, it's a long, it's a long-term project, but I would think in the long run, you ought to be able to build a machine that was a perfect simulation of a human brain that replicates the behavior of the human brain. And at that point, I think there's pretty good reason to think it would have many of the capacities of a human brain, including the capacity for consciousness. Now, we don't understand consciousness and how it works, and there are very big mysteries there. But if I had to bet, I would bet that simulated consciousness will be possible within the next century or so. I instinctively recoil from the prospect mm. of spending time in virtual reality. Perhaps I shouldn't, but I, but I do. It may well be that people younger than me don't do so. Are we approaching a time when people may want to spend a lot of their time in VR. And what would be the attraction of doing so? People are already spending a lot of time in digital worlds and virtual worlds, you know, many hours a day on the internet or in video games or in social worlds like Second Life. And I think it's probably just going to increase. You know, people go to where communities are and a lot of communities these days are online. But I think it's especially attractive for people whose access to the physical world is not as great as it could be. So take, for example, you know, disabled people or aging people whose access to ordinary physical reality is in some way compromising. Quite often, you know, disabled or aging people are among the biggest users of virtual worlds like, say, Second Life, because it gives them better access to communities and new forms of embodiment. Likewise, people, you know, in a, people who are oppressed or people who are experimenting with identities in a way that might be difficult to do in physical, in physical reality right away, often find that virtual worlds provide a great place to do this. Communities where you can adopt a new persona and experiment with many different styles of living. So, I mean, there'll also be strong incentives to work in virtual worlds. I think we're already seeing people transition from physical workplaces to Zoom-based workplaces, but that'll be so much better once we actually can have a real virtual workspace with virtual spaces that we're actually inhabiting in in a somewhat embodied form. I think it could at least be a lot better than Zoom. So there will be many forces sending us in this direction. Because it's hard to imagine at the moment how we could do some of the things that we value most as the human race, like bringing up children, for example, like having random encounters and unexpected things happen. How we could achieve that in virtual reality? Or would we simply cease to need or want to do those things? Yeah, I think in the... Uh... I mean, there are going to be major limits to virtual worlds, at least in the short term. I mean, you know, for the next century or so, we're going to be grounded in physical reality. We're going to have physical bodies that need to be taken care of. And so much that's important to us involves the body, whether it's, you know, 
eating or drinking or touch or sex. Or, you know, so much involves the body. So that, I guess that's not going away anytime soon. In the short term, there's going to be a mix of spending some of your time in virtual reality with an important anchoring in physical reality. But if you want to look for the long term, people have speculated that as time goes on, we may be able to actually upload ourselves completely and upload our brains to uh, digital systems, which are potentially immortal, maybe upload our bodies too. So we'll live in a, uh, in a virtual world with virtual bodies and maybe in some ways those bodies could outstrip what you can do with, with physical bodies. Now, of course, this is massive speculation right now. It's science fiction right now. And I, I don't think, you know, some people are always going to choose, I think, to be in physical reality. And I think that's totally fine. But I think if some people do choose to live their lives in virtual reality, eventually there are going to be ways to do this full scale. I suppose at least we could avoid pandemics or at least the conventional yeah. form of viruses. If we, if right, we... we're going to have to worry about the computer viruses yeah. then. <laughs> yes, uh, that did just, just occur to me. I'm going to ask you lastly, not whether you think we might be living in a simulation and some sort of, you know, whether percentage chance that we are or not, which I think is less interesting than the question of how much do you think it matters if we are living in a simulation, if we are all simulated, does that matter? That's interesting. I mean, I think in some ways, I think it matters less than some people think. One common view is if we're living in a simulation, none of this is real. It's a delusion. Our lives are meaningless. Whereas my view is if we're in a simulation, all this is still real. It matters. And our life is still full of meaning. We are conscious beings. We invest our world with meaning. And we can do that whether the world is physical or digital. But it might matter in some ways. I mean, boy, if it turns out we're in a simulation, this would at least, if we discovered this, this would be a discovery, at least as interesting as discovering there's a God who created our world. You know, the simulator might be a kind of God. They'll be all-knowing. They'll be all-powerful. It would raise possibilities like, uh, well, we don't want our simulation to end. So we'd raise some dangers. We'd also raise some religious people are often attracted by the possibility of life after death. If it turns out we're in a simulation, it also raises the question that maybe this code could somehow be immortal. You know, when we die, maybe they take our code, the code underlying our simulations, and transport it to some other virtual world, so digital analogs of heaven. So at least this would carry the kind of interest could be carried by, you know, the existence of a traditional god. But at the same time, I think, you know, life goes on, whether we're in a simulation or not. David, this has been an extraordinary discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Rodas. Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy is published by Penguin Books and is out now. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp? You can also back the bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archibald, Yelena Safranievich, and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the audio producer was Jay Bailey, group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Jay Bailey, The Bunker, is a podmaster's simulation. <laughs>